Thanks, Kylie. Well, hey, everybody. Hey, yeah. Casual this morning. My name is Kevin Sanders. For those of you who don't know me, I have the honor of being lead pastor here at Hope. And I'm especially sprightly and bouncy today because I just got back from vacation, as you know. My wife and I went down to Florida without the kids, and I'm happy to report it only rained two of the days we were there. May not sound like good news, but if you've been tracking our recent vacations, this is trending in a positive way for us, okay? So we are pretty pleased with that outcome. We had an amazing time, but oh, how good it is to be with you all today. I want to ask you a question, uh, and maybe you're like my wife and I. Do you ever, you sit down to read a really good book, or you're, you're watching maybe like a, a, a TV show or a movie, and it's one of these stories that clearly there's going to be a bad guy, right? And you just really want to figure out who that bad guy is, right? And you're just waiting, trying to figure out who that bad guy is. And, uh, you know, in these police shows, Meg and I tend to watch those from time to time, like a Criminal Minds or a Law and Order, right? That kind of thing. And something happens, like, you know, it has the crime, and then, like, 10 minutes in, there's, like, this suspect. Maybe it's this guy. Every time Meg and I look to each other, there's no way that's the bad guy. We got 50 more minutes of TV to go. They wouldn't reveal it that early. We is, you know, all of that. This is all connected, I promise. Uh, some of you may know, and if you don't, it might not be a surprise. I like to read fantasy books. Big, hefty fantasy books. Okay, that might not work. We'll go this way. All right, so this is a series I recently finished. Thank you. Okay. Now... I'm a pretty slow reader, but this took me six years to finish. Okay, look at that. See that? All right. There, I, 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 I didn't count them all myself. I relied on Google, but apparently there's 11,405 pages in these books. Uh, 3,325,000 words. Took me six years. I read all of them. Amazing series. Uh, I can't, but, you know, anyway. All right. Clearly, I mean, you can just see the spines. There's going to be a bad guy, right? These lengthy fantasy books. This is the first one down here, right? And then that's the last one. It took all the way, not this book, not this, not, no, 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 this book until you finally realize who the big bad guy is going to be. I read all of that not knowing. Okay, why am I saying all this? Just wait. We're getting there. We're building a narrative is what we're doing behind the scenes. All right, move those. Grab this one. Now, in the Bible, does it take that long till we know who the enemy is? No. It doesn't take long at all. My parents got me this super cool book uh, in Europe, and it, it makes me laugh. They, they got it at one of their first stops on this awesome European trip, and they traveled with this the rest of the leg, which cracks me up. Look how big this thing is. It's ridiculous. I love it. Way to go, parents. They must like me. All right. Time chart of biblical history. Uh, Kylie, I need you. I need your hands. All right. Why don't you hold that? This has a timeline in it. Okay. All right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're almost there. Okay. Oh, okay. Right there. Right there. There's more info here. But now you see this timeline. Kylie, could you point to the very beginning of that timeline? At the top there. Okay. 
That's where we learn who God's enemy is in the Bible, in the true Bible, the true word of God. Now look at all of this afterwards. And you can see it starts small, and then it spreads out, and then expands. Because, you know, history is kind of complex, and there's a lot of different lines and layers. You can see all the way to here, Jesus upon the cross. Now we know, even after this, there's some 2,000 more years, right? To where we are now. And then we know there's untold however many years until Jesus comes again. But as the people of God, from the word, the true word of God, we see that all throughout this, we have one true amazing God, the Savior of the world, who has always been good. And we have one enemy, the enemy of God. And we know about him right here in the Bible. And I find that rather amazing. Thank you, Kylie. I find that really really amazing because you don't just learn who the enemy is early on in the word of God. You learn the stakes, you learn the rescue plan, and you learn the ending. It all comes into sharp focus. We're in week four of our series, Supernatural. We've looked at the supernatural ways that God has worked uh, through his sacraments, through his word, and through his Holy Spirit. But today we're shifting our focus to the dark side. We're talking about the supernatural enemy. As displayed through, through this silly illustration, uh, we learn of God's enemy. It is in chapter 3 where we learn. Chapter 3 of the Bible, okay? And uh, in my book, that is two and a half pages in. I got a paper cut through this, guys. Yeah. Chapter 1 and 2 of God's Word, we know they deal with our beginning, right? God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. And he saw it was very good. He created that, everything in them. And then we see the fall of Adam and Eve as they succumb to the crafty temptations of Satan. And immediately after this, after God hears Adam and Eve's excuses, he first addresses the serpent, which I really love because there is grace abounds in Genesis 3, even though it may not first seem that way. Adam and Eve just did this thing, but who does he address first but the one behind it all? Satan. This is what the Lord said. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. And yes, you will strike his heel. Three chapters and 15 verses in, we get the enemy, the stakes, the rescue plan, and the promised victory. God curses Satan and reveals that because of what he has done to his beloved creation, that humans and Satan will forever be in opposition And though Satan may harm humanity, the final victory will come from the offspring of Eve through the line of David, the perfect son, Jesus Christ, who upon the cross deals Satan the crushing defeat as he delivers the death blow. And from that moment in the garden of God's cursing, from that moment, Satan works to try and derail and corrupt, and deceive, and influence, and distract, and win over humanity. 
And while he may strike heels, and while he does cause pain, God's people will not be crushed by the one who has already been conquered. So who is Satan? What is it that he does? Where did, where did he come from? Ultimately, what happened upon the cross? And then how do we respond? That's what we're dealing with today. So let's get some background on this supernatural enemy and why we need not fear him, for we have a supernatural God. We're going to jump in, and as uh, John refers to him in Revelation 12, we're going to learn more about this ancient serpent called the devil or Satan who leads the whole world astray. The first thing to know about Satan is that God created Satan. God created Satan, for as it says in Colossians, in him, that is God, all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Satan is no exception to this. God created Satan. In fact, there's only one that is uncreated, and that is our creator, God. Uh, That means everything that has been created falls underneath his authority. One of my, you know, I have, uh, Miles is almost seven years old, my son. And one of my sessions of questions with Miles, which happens basically nonstop, because he's almost seven, and he's a very curious kid, uh, he really is trying to wrestle with God being uncreated. Because that is a mystery that we just can't fathom. Well, who created him? Well, no one created him. He's always been. How can that be? You must be created. All things except from him are created. Because if anyone created him, they would prove more powerful than he. And that is not true because he is all powerful. So we're working through this. And it's hard for a seven-year-old to grasp. It's hard for a 34-year-old to grasp. And yet it's a majestic, beautiful truth of our creator God. And yes, he created Satan. But what's crazier than that is that God created Satan. He also created him good. God created Satan good. 1 John 1 tells us this. This this is the message we've heard from him. We declare to you, God is light. That means in him, there is no darkness at all. No darkness within him. That means darkness cannot come from him. He is goodness. He is love. He is light in its most pure form. So that which he creates, he creates good. Very good, as Genesis tells us. And what else do we know about Satan? He was of the highest order of angels, and he was, he held the name Lucifer. Now that, that's kind of like, it's hard to track the translations, but that's the best guess as to what we have for his name was Lucifer. And to look at this, we, we look at Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. Now, these are interesting passages. They, they gift us valuable information regarding the early history of Satan, which we don't have a whole lot of. But just like all of Scripture, we have to study them prayerfully and carefully, because at first glance, the text, it appears to be discussing earthly kings. But on a deeper study, the prophets, you realize, they're discussing earthly kings in terms that simply cannot apply to mere humans. And in both of these instances, yes, the prophets are condemning earthly kings, 
But even more so, it's primarily God condemning Satan who had motivated these kings to sin. So here now, from Ezekiel and Isaiah, these words about Satan. Son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Those are not words for a mere human, for instance. You were in Eden, the garden of a god. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for I so ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until when wickedness was found in you. Moving on to Isaiah. How you have fallen from heaven, O day star. Other other places call it morning star, which is the translation to Lucifer, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I'll ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will, I, I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. Lucifer, Daystar, Light Bearer, Son of the Morning. He had a high station set upon the holy mountain of God. And for a time, the word tells us he was perfect in all his ways. But as we know, the Light Bearer becomes the Prince of Darkness. So what happened? How did this fall go about? Somehow, inexplicably, Satan was not content in the presence of the holy and perfect, the one true God. He wanted more. He longed for more. Being of the highest order of angels was not enough for him. In the presence of a perfect God, that was not enough for him. He longed to be more. And this desire grew within him until he acted upon it. And he acted outside of God's design. He acted outside of God's will. And what's the word we have for that? But sin. See, Scripture shows us That like humans, angels are created with free will. The freedom to choose. God does not create robots. He creates beings, both spiritual heavenly beings as well as human beings that have the capacity to choose him. God's essence, after all, is love. And we know that a relationship, which is the bond of love, a relationship It's not bound with love if there is no choice in that relationship. Satan here, well, he made his choice. He made his choice. He chose himself over love. So sometime before the creation of the earth, Satan, puffed up with pride, challenged God. As Isaiah 14 said, he's (laughs) noticed all the eyes 
I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the Most High. In his pride, Satan believed that he could do what only God does. He believed he could set himself upon a throne. He believed on his own power that he could be like God. And later, isn't that one of his chief temptations that he brings to humans? You can be like God. You can be like God. See, Satan lost sight of the fact that all he had and all he is is from God. He accomplished none of that on his own doing. It was not his light that he held as the light bearer. It was the light of God's. And it appears that other angels chose to follow Satan. In fact, Revelation suggests that a third of the angels chose to follow Satan in his rebellion. Pause a moment here. Consider the heart of God. Remember his heartache in the garden. Where are you? Remember his heartache when they chose sin over him. Remember his heartache over his people continually choosing man-made idols over the one that created them. Remember his heartache at the pain that sin causes his people. And remember his heartache as his perfect son rests upon that cross for the pain that he had to endure in order to make all things right. And now, imagine the heartache before all of that of our beloved God, when one of his heavenly creation, whom he loved, rebelled against him, and another third of those whom he loved turned against him. Our God's long-suffering, his non-stop, his forever persisting love goes far beyond us or anything in this earthly realm. And now, though it breaks God's heart, because he is holy and sin and rebellion against him has now occurred, it must be punished. It must. They are not compatible. As Jude 6 tells us, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In 2 Peter 2, 4, this comes in a list of those that God will not spare, those that don't choose God despite having every chance to choose God. He includes these fallen angels. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Satan along with those that followed him, had a desire for more power, 
for more authority than they were appointed by God and under God. And in so doing, they reject God as their all-satisfying king and joy and instead chose to put themselves in that place. Which ensures a torment of two kinds. The first is a self-inflicted torment. Think about this. Think about this for a minute. To be absent from God and in opposition to God is of the greatest of torments because all joy, all goodness, all things that are good are found in him alone. And they removed themselves from that. That's the first torment, but of course, there's the other, the God-appointed torment forevermore. For we know sin is an act of insurrection against God. And it's, when you think of it, when we choose sin over God, it does not, it does not put ourselves over and above God as Satan thought he could do. Instead, what does it do? It chains ourselves to the gloomy death. And so Satan, desiring to be like God, he's cast out of heaven. But God still allows him to exist. And not just exist, but he can still do things. He still has power. Now, he's not all-powerful as he desired. No, but, but Satan, he, we know he falls fully underneath the authority of God. It's off-focus for today to delve deeply into the immense struggles uh, to comprehend evil and, and all the hardships of the world, like why, why does all this stuff happen and bad things, you know, all of that. We've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again. But what you need to remember right here and now in knowing that God allowed Satan to exist and still do things is that God is the most good that good can be. And so as such, we can trust that what he chooses to do, not to do, what he chooses to allow, not allow, all is a part of his great grand plan. He is powerful enough to handle it all. He is wise enough to know it all. And through all of it, he is good. And as he is good, he is also working out all things for what our good, not just our good, but also to his glory. So we can trust that. So after Satan was cast out, we know he was present in the garden. He was present in the garden, and since that day, he has sought to steal God's beloved creation away from him and drag us all down with him. Or, if we've already given our allegiance to Christ, he will seek to limit our gospel influence to distract us, to confuse us, to make us believe that we don't have to do anything. But when we read the word, we see we have a great commandment. We have a great commission. We have work to do. And so let us not be distracted by the enemy's plans. See, Satan, as John said, he leads the whole world astray. Though he desired to be the ruler of the heavens, he was cast down. He was cast down to where he temporarily is the ruler of the world. John 12, 14, and 16, and elsewhere all claim that. He's the ruler of the world. But he's not as powerful as God, nor will he ever be. 
Daniel 4.17 says this, The Most High is ruler over the realm of humankind, and he bestows on it whom he wishes. Though Satan rules over this world, God rules over it all, and his rule and reign trumps that of Satan's. So what does this enemy do? How, how does he lead the world astray? Have you heard it said before, to, to defeat your enemies, you have to understand them? Have you heard that before? I read it recently in uh, another massive fantasy book, but I thought it was, like, yeah, okay, if you're gonna, you need to know your enemies. Think about sports, right? If, if you're in sports, these professional athletes and coaches and all that, they are always studying game film of the other teams as well as themselves. They have to learn how to better themselves, but they also study their opponents to know what they do and how they need to respond. The thing with Satan is, his names, they reveal his essence and his work. So I'm going to bring you most of the names of Satan that are brought in this good book, the true book, uh, but it's not even all of them yet. And we will start to learn a bit more of how the enemy acts. Look at the corrupt and evil heart of the enemy. First, Satan. That is used over 50 times in Scripture. It means the adversary, one who hates or one who accuses. Satan stands against everything that God stands for. He is the devil. Now, the term the devil is not used for Satan any time in the Old Testament, but then 40 times in the New Testament, he's referred to as the devil. It stands for false accuser or slanderer, but then you get down into the, 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 the nitty-gritty Greek of it all, and it's, uh, the Greek word is diabolos. Just sounds evil, right? Diabolos. And then you break that down into its parts. Dia, that means a uh, 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 down. Dia is down, and ball means to throw down. I find this fascinating. In both senses, Satan the devil seeks to throw others down, as well as he himself is the one who has been thrown down. Do you see that? The thrown down one is constantly trying to bring others down with him. He tried this with Jesus in the desert, didn't he? He tried it with those who don't yet know God. He tries it with those who have their faith in God as a way to render them ineffective. Who else is he? Jesus called him the evil one. He is the serpent once a majestic heavenly being with like four or six wings or, you know, all of that, he is now sentenced to squirm around and slither as he seeks to bring us down with him. And he is now barred from heaven forever. Paul calls him the God of this age. For if you don't follow God, then your allegiance, knowingly or not, is to the enemy. He's the God of this age. He's also the father of lies, Scripture says. That is his native tongue. He only speaks in lies. There is no truth in him. He's the prince of this world, or Beelzebul, uh, as the Pharisees call him, the prince of demons. He's the prince of the power of the air. All of that means that he has those underneath him who serve him. A little teaser, that's what we're learning about next week, our demons. He is the accuser. He is the adversary. He is a roaring lion, but not the good kind. He is a murderer, a tempter, and a thief. Satan is real, friends, 
And yes, he is dangerous, and he will do anything in his supernatural power to trip you up. But the beauty is, we have access to a higher supernatural power. In fact, the highest power. James 4, 7 implores us to resist the devil, and he, what's that word? Will flee from you. Why? As Pastor Curry talked about last week, by submitting ourselves to the Lord, we submit to one higher than the enemy. For he has been cast down while Jesus has been raised up. And when he was raised up, he raised us with him. In Christ, we are more than conquerors over the enemy. We are co-heirs with Christ. Because Jesus came, Jesus resisted the devil. He defeated the devil upon that cross and that empty tomb. So what happened on that cross? When Jesus Christ died for our sins, the enemy was disarmed and defeated. Now Satan wants to bring us all down with him, but on the cross and with that empty tomb, God displayed his ultimate power even over death, even over this enemy. Satan could no longer accuse us of being guilty. He could no longer accuse us of deserving death, for God paid the price so that we might be made clean. Satan no longer has any claim over us. I need an amen for that. Satan no longer has any claim over us. The record of sin, of debt, has been clean. It stood against us, and Christ nailed it to the cross. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you, what's that word? Alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. What did he do? He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and the authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. That day, that day that Jesus hung on the cross, the enemy thought he was about to win. Oh no. Oh no. He what did God do? He made a public spectacle. I will show you who's all-powerful. This is our God. This is who we belong to. Satan has no claim on those who surrender their lives to Jesus Christ. That's why when we resist him, in Jesus' name, the devil, he will flee. He will flee, for he cannot dare go toe-to-toe with the power of the Almighty God. But at the same time, we must not fall asleep to the danger of the enemy. 1 Peter 5.8, stay alert. Stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. 
he prowls along, around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. When Jesus comes again, Satan will meet his final and complete defeat that was promised and assured upon the cross. But until that day, Satan will try to bring everyone else down with him even as he bleeds out. So we must stay alert. So to wrap up, what's our response? What is our battle plan? Because we are a part of a war, friends. The first thing, do we fear him or do we just brush him off? I dare say we neither need to overestimate him nor underestimate him. Satan has power and he will do what Satan does. He will lie, he will confuse, he will tempt, he will, he will, he will lure, he will exploit, he will seduce. He'll do anything in his power. Satan will do what Satan will do, but God will continue to do what God does, and he keeps his promises. So we need not fear. We acknowledge Satan has power, but we need not fear because we can trust in Almighty God. I want to give you an example. Two and a half weeks ago, uh, I was preparing a message against the enemy, Satan. I was deep in the weeds of studying all of this stuff. And as many of you know, I did an at-home test, wasn't feeling over well, and enough reason to take a test, and I got a positive at-home COVID test. It was a faint line, but it was there. I sent it to Stephanie, and she's like, it's there, man. And so what do we do? We quickly have to scramble and we change plans and we have such an amazing group of people here. So Pastor Curry moved a week up and he preached two weeks in a row and we shifted so I'd preach this after those two. All of that, that positive test, as I'm preparing a message against the enemy. Now, was that his doing? I don't know. I don't know. I can't claim whether it was or not. But is it like something he would do? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. But were his purposes accomplished? Absolutely not. That plan changed. My goodness, Curry brought that word mightily again and again. What happened later? We go, we take in another test, one of those official ones or whatever, and it comes back negative. Our whole family starts feeling better. We could worship with you on Sunday. All was well. We were good. All of that stuff. Why do I say all this? Because don't let the threat of the enemy or the possibility of the enemy cause you to cower. Do not give him an inch. We are the people of God. We stand our ground upon the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Neither overestimate him nor underestimate him. And when we fight, we will combat his lies, the father of lies. There's no truth in him at all. We will combat his lies with God's truth. What does Jesus say? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And how did Jesus respond to Satan? We saw in the desert when Satan is tempting him. And, every, and guess what? Satan knows the Bible 
probably better than most of us do, right? Uh, He knows God. He knows his word. Uh, Yeah, so we need to be in the word too. Because look at what, what Jesus did in the temptation. He responded each time with the true word of God. Each time. He cannot, he cannot stand against the truth, for he is the father of lies. So we will combat his lies with God's truth. You know what the Bible says about itself, that it is the word of God. It is the sword of the spirit. It is sharper than any double-edged sword or false word of the father of lies. This is our offense. Our armor of God is all defensive to protect us. And this is the one thing that both defends and attacks. So know this word. Love this word. Embrace this word. And follow this word. And in this war, in this battle, do not give the enemy a foothold. Because he is a serpent. He slithers. He sneaks. If he has an inch, he'll take a mile. Do not give that enemy a foothold. You've heard it said, that which loves the darkness hates the light. That means, what's our response? That which is dwelling in darkness, we bring into God's light. Satan lurks in the shadows. He's the prince of darkness. But Jesus Christ is the light of the world. And Satan must, because he has no other choice but to flee from the light. What else loves the shadows but our shame, our guilt, our sin, our addictions, all those things? We don't want people to know them. We're embarrassed. We're scared. We're afraid. It's heavy stuff. We don't want to bring those out into the light. None of us do. But what happens when we do? We are met with God's all-embracing, all-caring love and forgiveness and acceptance. And in the family of God, when we bring those things out into the light of the family of God, the family of God responds as the people of God with God's love and forgiveness and grace and acceptance. At least that's what we are called to. As John 8, 12 says, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me, they will not walk in darkness but they will have the light of life. Do not give the enemy a foothold by leaving things that love the dark in the dark. Bring them out into the light and experience God's transformational love. The next step in our battle plan, don't go it alone. Don't go it alone. Submit to the Spirit and link arms with your church family. We are in this battle together. We are in this battle together, and the very death-defying power of God lives in you. Allow him to do a work in and through you. And then we remember who we are and whose we are. Remember the king. Remember the king of kings. Remember his power, his victory, his promise. Remember that he holds you in the palm of your hand. And nothing, nothing, not even the evil one, the enemy, can ever pluck you out of his hand. Remember, if you're a follower of Jesus, you made a choice. It was, it was a choice the enemy could not make, could never make. You made the choice to surrender your life to Jesus. And in so doing, your chains had been broken. 
You have been set free. You are a new creation. The old's gone. The new has come. All while the enemy remains captive. Remember who you are. And remember whose you are. Because Jesus is everything Satan's not. The path to life. That's Jesus. The truth. No, fathers of lies. He's the truth. He is the, not the prince of darkness. He's the prince of peace. He is the only one equal to God. Satan wanted to be like God. Only one, Jesus. And guess what? He remained humble, not counting equality a thing with God as something to be grasped. That's your king. That's your king. You belong to that king. You belong, body and soul, to Jesus Christ. Praise God. And finally, remember the battle. Remember the battle. The enemy would love for us to forget that things are at stake. Remember the battle. A life of worship is a life opposed to the enemy. If sin is an act of insurrection against God, then every act of worship is an act of war against the enemy. We worship to raise God's name on high, and as we do so, we cast the enemy's name down low to where it belongs. We exalt the one who is holy, and we claim the enemy cannot claim us. We belong to the one true God, the one who is victorious, the one who gave us life, the one who reigns above it all, the one who overcomes. And because we belong to him, we too will overcome Satan and anything, anything, anything he throws at us. Yeah, Satan is real, but we need not fear. We need not fear. We go to battle. Because our God is real, and our God is good, and he is the king, and he overcomes. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's join our hearts together in prayer. Lord God, you are the one true God. You are all-powerful, all-loving. You are just and merciful and you are our king. We praise your name this day, Lord, and we once again claim that our allegiance is to you. Lord, forgive us the times when we, we go astray, and forgive us the times we get lost and confused, and, and we fall asleep to what you, this life you have called us to. And yet, God, your, your goodness is so far-reaching that you continue to yoke yourself to us. So we give you thanks. You are our Lord. You are our God. And the enemy has no chance against you. You've already claimed the victory upon the cross. And so we rest in that assurance today. We praise your name for that truth, Lord. For any here who have not yet claimed you as Lord and Savior, I pray that through the power of your Spirit, as only you can, you draw them in, and they, they pray to make you Lord of their life, God. And then they share with us that they've made that prayer and that decision so we can link arms and march forward together. Because this is the only way, God. The only way. You alone are the way. And so we give you thanks. 
God, as we prepare to sing our last song, as we prepare to be sent out by your blessing, to, to enter into this world that, that Satan rules over, we can proclaim and profess that we will overcome because of what you've already done, because of who you are, because you are our God. We thank you, Lord. We thank you. We thank you. And we love you. And we pray this all in the power of Jesus' name. Amen.